Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. We're living in a world where humans are seen as the problem and technology as the solution. Well, not here. Team Human is a flag in the sand, an intervention by people on behalf of people, a denunciation of the fear, the labels, and the lies that are used to alienate us from one another, erode the fabric of our social reality, and pit us against one another in an ill-conceived and self-destructive competition. And for what? Total isolation masquerading as security. Well, that stops here. It's time to find the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, platform cooperative activist, journalist, and author of Everything for Everyone, Nathan Schneider. You know, the cooperative is an institutional innovation. It's a structure designed to make apparent to people, you know, the truth, which is that ultimately we will benefit from working together and from supporting each other's success. Nathan will be showing us how many cooperatives are operating right now in plain sight and how the co-op may just be a model for a more participatory approach to life. I can't talk at all about the Trump presidency without eliciting a whole bunch of emails. About half of them will complain that I'm being too mean and harsh on this guy. And about half of them will say that I'm being too sympathetic and uh, bending over too far backwards to explain and justify or rationalize uh, what he's doing. It's the main reason I've, I've really avoided uh, speaking about him very much. I did one uh, a week or so ago about the uh, cult tactics that uh, Trump uses to maintain loyalty among the people around him. Nothing about his policy, really just about the kinds of, of tactics that are used to engender loyalty. And I did one way at the beginning when uh, Trump had, uh, when he was first becoming president, he created this website where anybody could uh, apply for a job in the administration. And I encouraged everybody to apply for jobs because I figured if we filled the administration with Team Human members, then that would just 
that'd be cool. At least take him up on it. You know, it was Obama never really said, hey, everybody, just apply. I'm a community organizer. Come on in. So I thought, let's just take him up on his word and see what happens. Yeah. And people complained about that, too. But I think part of the part of yeah, part of the polarity is just because of this man and the figure that he is. But part of it has to do with the way our our media work. And I don't mean our our media uh, broadcasting entities, but our media environment now is so um, geared towards polarity that it's really hard to listen to anybody or watch anybody without trying to decide which side of this thing are they on? Are they this? Are they that? It's sort of a, a I guess it's an extension of our, of our uh, is this a threat or is this a friend uh, instinct? And it translates really well and really starkly to, uh, uh, to social media, for sure. You know, our, our social media platforms are really engineered um, to be binary so that you either go towards something or away from something so that really they have the data they need to figure out, are you a one or a zero here? You know, which side are they on? And then they can uh, construct a, a social graph or a, a brand graph or a desire graph of who you are and the algorithms can learn and, and track and predict and ultimately influence. And I was thinking about the way social media does that and the way it's it, it's really programmed to do that uh, for those very reasons and how you might try to program it otherwise. How could we make a social media landscape that engendered trust, that uh, accounted for complexity, that let you feel, have mixed feelings about something and not resolve and not... Uh, get down to your yes or no, pro or anti, you know, sympathy or antipathy. And I started to realize that really, you know, language itself already does this. I mean, I'm. Uh, you can go back, you know, from social media, back to television, back to radio, back to print and the printing press, back to text. But then it really goes all the way back uh, to language that as we tried to name things and come up with, uh, uh, you know, mouth noises that signified particular things, we end up reducing human experience to these kinds of symbols, these, these signifiers. I... Someone's little kid just remarked to, to him uh, that, that, you know, the kid was learning all these nouns for different things. Like, oh, that's a flower. What's that? That's a dog. What's that? That's a cat. And the kid remarked, well, you know, once you name something, you kind of kill it, don't you? And he didn't mean kill it literally. He meant that you uh, limit what it is. Now, this strange, wonderful, mysterious thing is officially dog. That's what it is. And it's done. Even the interviews we do on this show, you know, these are people talking. <laughs> it's people using words to kind of try to describe what they mean. And I think on a certain level, the value of these conversations is only half the things we say, the things we're trying to convey, whether it's about, oh, these are alternative currencies, or this is the experience of, of people in prison, or this is what it's like to have your, your social graph uh, error-prone and then 
documented in a government website and here's what we can do here's how we can reclaim the land here's how we can do permaculture there's all that that's really just half of it because that's words you know there's uh, those are approximations of things that are going on what's really happening in these interviews is the the sound of engagement you know what you're listening to are two or sometimes three people doing the best we can to make sense of each other's mouth noises to identify oh right i think i know what you mean cuz i meet do this so i tell a story as if is that what you mean and they tell a different story well it's a little bit more like this as we try to figure things out because really what you're listening to is the sound of solidarity you're listening to the sound of mutual recognition of I see you, I hear you, and you see me and hear me, and we're doing the best we can, but we are together in this. And that's really the best thing that we can model for Team Human. We've got this content and we try to make it great content, but really it's the context. It's the conversation itself. It's two people, ideally in the same space, trying to make sense of each other, for each other, with each other and rising to that occasion. You're on Team Human, coming to you, alive, from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. I'm Sylvia Zier, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Richard D. Bartlett, and I'm on Team Human. I am Tessa Lena, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Sarah Lagerson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Stako Tromkoso from the Peer-to-Peer Foundation, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Marina Gorbis, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Esteban Kelly, and I'm on Team Human. So thanks for joining us on this show. I'm... Really happy to have a good friend of mine on the show today. His name's Nathan Schneider, and I've known him for a decade now. He was one of the first journalists on the scene at Occupy Wall Street, and he wrote some really great articles about the entire movement for the nation. And then a little bit later, he was one of the founders of the Platform Cooperative Movement, along with Trevor Schultz and me. And then he was co-editor of a collection of essays in which I also got to participate called uh, Ours to Hack and to Own, The Rise of Platform Cooperativism, A New Vision for the Future of Work and a Fairer Internet that came out from Or Books, one of my very favorite independent publishers. And we've been really in touch ever since those days, looking at everything from cooperative economics to the Catholic origins of the distributist economic model. And I just had the pleasure of endorsing Nathan's latest book, Everything for Everyone, The Radical Tradition That is Shaping the Next Economy. Nathan Schneider, I'm so glad to have you on. And and I guess not coincidentally, to celebrate the publication of your new book, Everything for Everyone, The Radical Tradition That is Shaping the Next Economy, out right now from Nation Books. And I guess you're doing you're doing the circuit and trying to spread the uh, the the gospel of cooperation as a business strategy. 
So I, I, I applaud sure you for yeah. that. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're, you have the patience to, uh, <laughs> to have been working on this. I mean, we met a number of years ago and you were, you were already looking at the kind of the transformation of business and the economy towards more uh, collaborative, cooperative structures, weren't you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we met right as the, the kind of, uh, the wave was really starting to pick up at least around that, uh, crazy notion of platform cooperativism of bringing this old tradition into the digital economy. It's been really fun since then working together and trying to, you know, especially from a storytelling perspective and, a uh, an ideas perspective and a connecting perspective show that this is not crazy talk. This right. is this is real. I know that's that's the gift of the book um, is that you really cite not just cite you you tell story after story of people and organizations and what we could call businesses or enterprises that have successfully navigated even the capitalist economy with cooperative solutions and that this is not. You know the the these are not the ravings of a of an idealistic kibbutznik, but <laughs> you know, but but someone who realizes that the the narrative that we've been using to understand well a whole lot of things, but um, uh, certainly individuality and business and growth and success is is not just flawed but but wrong. It it, it doesn't even make. Uh, mathematical or economic sense. So it, I guess it doesn't even explain our world. You know, it doesn't explain where we are. And that, that's, that's been kind of the big revelation for me. One, one of the big ones is, is, rec is going from seeing this stuff as kind of utopian uh, myself, you know, and marginal to actually recognizing, hey, you can plot me in, you know, most strip malls in America and I can look around and see the remnants and, and uh, manifestations of cooperative businesses, you know, around us in the places you would least expect, um, doing stuff in the background often that uh, uh, we rely on and that are helping to prop up some of the best parts of this world. Um, and, uh, and this is a part of the story of, you know, what goes under the name of capitalism that, that the, you know, kind of capitalism propaganda doesn't want us to to know that actually it's not all a kind of investor crazy land of of uh, uh, kind of casino competition that is uh, that is producing all the wonders to the extent that there are wonders that we live among. Um, there's actually other logics at work as well. So you found out as you've been doing this work that uh, there's cooperative experience in your blood basically <laughs> this is mm -hmm. it goes back in your family i'm wondering if you could tell the story about yeah sort of where where your 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 cooperative genetics came from well you know i i again i, I got into this stuff at, coming out of uh, my last project last major project which was a book on occupy wall street you know where i was i was kind of the first reporter to show up during the planning meetings and the last to leave after the protests were kind of disbanding and everybody was quitting and and you know uh, uh, denouncing the whole thing and so forth, and 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 out of that, I saw a lot of those leading activists starting to figure out how to 
you know, live in the economy that they hadn't yet transformed. And they, they turned to cooperative business, a kind of, a kind of business where, you know, uh, people can practice democracy every day and, and uh, where the people who are participating in the business, whether they're consumers or workers or whatever it is, are the owners and, you know, have some say in how it's run. And, and, um, you know, and, and so I, I, I'd experienced this some before. I, you know, lived in a housing co-op years earlier, but I really got into this movement in earnest um, out of those those you know very often radical left activists. And then um, in the years since, as I was continuing to work on this, continuing to be fascinated by this by this tradition and learning more about it, I, I had the opportunity to move out here to Colorado, where um, I was in New York City before I moved to Colorado where my mother's family is from. And, and this gave me the chance to just ask some more questions about my family and, and to root around in my, in my aunt's basement in, uh, in Denver and, you know, get to know some of the farmers who, you know, my mother had grown up visiting. And I realized, for instance, that, that first of all, you know, the farm that my grandfather grew up on, you know, at a time when there was no electricity, you know, he had a, a you know, modest grade school education, didn't get electricity until uh, an electric cooperative showed up, a, uh, a cooperative that was formed by farmers in that community, along with farmers around the country at that time in the, in the 1930s and 40s, to bring electricity where the investor-owned utility companies wouldn't go. And then uh, later on in his life, my grandfather, you know, around the time I was born, a little bit earlier, uh, found himself with an opportunity to build a, a national uh, uh, hardware distribution cooperative. And, you know, I remember seeing the belt buckle uh, of that brand, the brand they used, it was called Trustworthy, the, mm-hmm. the company was Liberty Distributors. And, and, um, and I remember seeing that when I was a kid, you know, after he'd retired. And, and uh, that was kind of that was a huge revelation for me because that was a, a, a really important reminder that this is a, a way of doing business, a kind of alternative economy that spans the kind of cultural divides in this country in really profound ways. You know, this is not something that either the right or the left owns. It's, you know, he was a, a kind of hard conservative, you know, farm boy, basically, you know, and, and he was doing the same kind of business as the, you know, the anarchists at Occupy. And that to me is actually an incredible sign of hope that this is, this is something that's so sensible that people who agree about virtually nothing else can actually get behind uh, uh, this tradition. So technically, though, what's the difference between, you know, Con Edison or, or some, some, or I don't even know if they are, but a private company saying, oh, the people over there need electricity. Let's get some capital and build out an electric grid and then just squeeze them for money to pay us for bringing it to them. What's the difference between that and people deciding we're going to form a cooperative to get electricity? Well, dur- during those years in the 20s and 30s, you know, it was just uh, the cost of bringing that electricity out to the countryside was just more than uh, those investor-owned companies wanted to bear. And and the investors would always just say, well, why don't you just get more customers to spend more money in the cities? That's always going to give us more return on our investment than than going out into those countryside uh, uh, areas where you have, you know, one house per mile. 
And of course, if you're living and, and, and so these companies would like make testimonies to Congress, which was saying, you know, could you please go out there? Um, just as, you know, happens today with broadband. It's this you know, same kind of story. Uh, and the companies keep saying either like, oh, no, those people are cool, you know, or they don't actually those farmers don't actually want electricity. They have this great life without electricity. And, you know, and all the farmers are like, you know, wait a second. This 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 is not actually true. We would love to be able to use electricity and to uh, and to make our lives easier and to um, you know, make our processes more efficient and things like that. And so, you know, the farmers uh, uh, first in kind of independent experiments uh, started taking on the work to make these things possible. And, you know, because they're, they weren't seeking, you know, a direct immediate monetary return just from the service of providing the electricity, they were able to benefit from the benefits uh, that that electricity would provide. So the investment in electricity for them, you know, even if it was done at a kind of nonprofit basis, you know, would enable them to make their farms much more efficient. So it was just a, a natural uh, a benefit for them. And so forming the cooperative was a way to make sure that they, you know, were able to see a, see a return and, and grow their economies. So it was, it was just a, a kind of business that made sense for a kind of grassroots initiative like that. And now, you know, uh, the, many of these, these uh, cooperatives, you know, they're, some are better than others, to say the least, but, you know, these are quite successful businesses. They power more than half the landmass of the United States. They, um, in many cases, too, are now starting to get into providing uh, broadband internet, uh, in some cases, fiber to the home, way faster and cheaper than most people in cities are, are going to see in a long time. Uh, these these uh, uh, rural folks are able to provide through their cooperatives. Um, and meanwhile, all the time, these big telecom utilities are are uh, saying, just as their predecessors did a hundred years ago, oh, you know, we don't need, we, we don't need to, or we can't afford, we couldn't possibly bring, you know, the the wonders of the internet to rural people. Well, how do they do it though? If they're not rich, they don't have capital. So, how does a cooperative actually work to do something like that? Uh, in one way or another, people are able to pull resources. In that case of the electric co-ops, uh, after there were a few successful examples, often built off of collaborations with, for instance, the the new federal um, uh, dams that were being built as part of depression programs and these sorts of things. Uh, the, the federal government, particularly uh, President Roosevelt, who, who had seen this work as governor of New York, recognized that this was a replicable model and the Department of Agriculture started providing, you know, essentially bank rate loans to these cooperatives. And so, and similar things have happened elsewhere in the the U.S. rural economy. And for this reason, because there are financing mechanisms available for for certain kinds of rural co-ops, electric and and agriculture, you know, brands like Sunkist and Land O'Lakes and Organic Valley, all the, these are all co-ops. This kind of model has has really uh, uh, powered the uh, rural America for for over a century, and it just is a signal of what can happen when you are able to arrange co-op appropriate uh, financing. It's a model that can take off. Unfortunately, we're in a moment now where those resources are not so available, and what is available is you know selling every possible business idea to uh, the wealthiest possible investors. And, you know, we end up with a, you know, a scenario of, of just uh, extraction at all costs. I mean, for most listeners, a co-op 
I mean, for those who it doesn't evoke a, some kind of deluxe apartment building in New York City, when they hear, you know, co-op, it sounds like... Or a dirty like, house packed with people like the one I lived in. <laughs> but they, they, they think of it as, you know, a cottage industry of people making candles or incense or something. Yet, I think one of the important things about your work is that you're showing us that these things are everywhere. I mean, maybe you could share some of the examples of businesses out there that are co-ops that people maybe don't realize are co-ops. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I, again, I can just look around my, uh, the, you know, the shopping, the shopping mall, uh, near my house, the hardware store is there only because it's part of Ace Hardware, a national cooperative of, of local hardware stores, you know, as opposed to the, the Home Depot down the street, rather than building on the basis of monopolization, this kind of model is designed to actually support small businesses, enable community-owned businesses to thrive. So if you have if you have an Ace hardware store, say I'm right. Joe and it's Joe's Ace of yeah. you know Piscataway, what does that mean that I'm in a co-op? It means it's really Joe's. It means it's Joe is the owner of that business and Joe... Uh, or the company is a member of Ace Hardware. That means that any profits that are uh, accrued by the national company, by Ace, go back to Joe. Uh, Joe has some say in how Ace is governed, um, these sorts of things. So and what does Ace a, do then? Ace is the Ace, one that it, buys the Ace screws the, from the distributor? It buys and then... the screws, yeah. It buys the screws. It it you know has its own generic brand. It it enables these these businesses to buy as if they're a national chain. So it gets you that efficiency that a large conglomerate is able to offer, but also allows that kind of local control that a conglomerate can never quite an, allow or enable. And and that's that's one of those things that's so cool is that this is a model that that really can. Uh, that it does best when it is enabling diversity to happen and uh, and is kind of accountable downward rather than accountable up to Wall Street. So, I mean, I kind of want to, and it, maybe it, it seems wonky to people, but I kind of want to really understand or, or at least explain these different structures. So, you know, you talked about Ace Hardware, where the guy gets to yeah. own his hardware store and he's part of this big collective. Now, to a lot of people, that just sounds like a franchise, but it's yeah. not a franchise. A franchise, what do you own? You are basically renting the McDonald's or the Dunkin' Donuts brand name, and then you're forced to buy everything from them. The central office keeps the profit of everything that you've bought from them. And yeah, you might be able to make money almost more as a renter of, of a store than as a true business owner. That's right. That's right. You, you know, you just you nailed it there. And, and in some cases, you know, the line can blur, you know, when a cooperative is not uh, vibrant, you know, and, and it can start looking a lot like a kind of McDonald's style franchise. But it is uh, in its in its core, in a sense, kind of the reverse of that, as you said, rather than, you know, renting from the main big company, you are the owner of it. The small uh, participants collectively are uh, are in charge of that company and are entitled to the, any benefits that it creates. I mean, there are these specific, I guess you, you wrote about them. There were these kind of rules, rule set that was originally developed in the 1800s, but has been adapted and changed and modified over time. But there are these kind of seven core principles 
if you're really, really a co-op that you That's do. Right. And I'm, I'm hoping maybe you can explain each one of these so we can understand sort of the, the planks, almost the Ten Commandments of this thing. But the, the first one is voluntary and open membership. And that seems mm-hmm. obvious. I mean, you can't force someone to be in a co-op, right? What does that, what does that really mean? Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I think that was really originally a kind of non-discrimination clause. You know, that's coming out of you know the kind of sectarian movements of of um, uh, uh, the British society at the time that these rules were first formulated. And that's a commitment to say, look, you know, just because you're you know you're a Catholic or a Quaker or whatever it is, um, you know, you're you're not going to be allowed in. And so that's it's. I, and I think today that's especially important where where co-ops are are. Um, often being developed on the uh, among people who are vulnerable in society, you know, who are uh, immigrants, who are, you know, who, who are disenfranchised in one way or another. That openness is, you know, I think could be kind of translated today as a kind of non, as a anti-racist, anti-oppression clause. Right. Uh, but I also uh, like yeah. the this idea of voluntary. It reminds me of um, yeah. the open space technology, you know, those unconferences where, Everything's supposed to be voluntary. You're coming to this thing because you're vol- you can't make your workers show up. But that a co-op yeah. is voluntary is sort of saying, look, there's this lake in town and we're going to form a cooperative around it. But you don't have we're not you can't be forced to contribute. You can't be forced That's to work right. for it. It's like, are you joining or not? But you you have to exercise agency to be a part of this thing. Yeah. So then yeah. number two is democratic member control, which sounds pretty straightforward, right? That just means you that the members get to vote oh, on except everything? It's not, <laughs> except it's not. Uh, I think that's that's what a lot of people come into that thinking, you know, that we everybody votes on everything or something along those lines. Right. Everybody decides everything. Um, and, you know, maybe that makes sense in an extremely high-touch sort of scenario where, uh, high-trust scenario where you're all living in the same house, right. you're all packed together, sharing the same bathroom. You know, when I was living in a co-op house when I was in college, yeah, it, we needed those weekly two-hour Sunday night meetings because otherwise the bathroom wouldn't get clean. You know? Right. And, uh, and that makes sense. But I, I think at any level of scale, you know, you start developing different structures that are appropriate that enable people who are responsible for doing a certain thing to have enough decision-making power to actually do that thing. So, um, right. so, so all this can all scale up to the point where, you know, a, a cooperative day-to-day might look you know, might have a, an organizational tree that looks, you know, just like any other kind of corporation. Um, the difference is that the board that hires that CEO, rather than being a board made up of investors and people accountable to those investors, um, is made up of people accountable to uh, the, the participants, the people who actually depend on that business. Right, and well, that so gets you, it, right, which gets to member it, economic participation too, you know, which is... Right. And, well, and that one means that, you know, members really, you got to have that skin in the game. That's, you know, that's the next piece is saying, um, hey, look, this is not, you know, a free handout. This is a thing that's about uh, 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 about accepting and building responsibility into the uh, into the nature of the business. So at member economic participation often means, you know, co-ops were the original crowdfunding. You know, when a group of people wanted to do something in their community and none of them in, on their own had the resources to do it, um, you know, a cooperative would be 
uh, for for you know much of the industrial period, the cooperatives kind of served that role of enabling people to do the thing that they wanted to do together. You know, REI, one of our great consumer co-ops in the U.S., was founded because you know a couple of you know outdoors people in Seattle wanted to get this really sweet you know ice axe from Germany that they couldn't buy on their own. They needed to get their friends together to buy a bunch of them. <laughs> Is and, that true? And yeah, exactly. That's their That's origin exactly story? They wanted to buy yeah. an axe to go, like, climbing or something? Exactly. It, it, it was the original. You know, now you would start a Kickstarter and, you know, hope to, you know, cross your fingers and hope whoever was running it would actually follow through. But in this case, you would do crowdfunding buy-in and you're darn right everybody's accountable to follow through because, you know, it's you're all co-owners of this thing. Right. And then what do you mean, number four, what you, like you wrote these rules, um, you wrote them down, but rule number four is uh, autonomy and independence. What does that so really that, mean? That, that is really, uh, that's about making sure that that democracy is real. And, and this, this goes back to, to uh, anxieties of, of govern, government interference often. So there have been times, for instance, where different regimes have, you know, across Eastern Europe and, and in um, across Africa as well after the independence movements and in, as a tool of colonialism as well um, by British colonists, uh, that, that cooperatives would be set up and controlled by government. And this is a, uh, a rule designed to insulate uh, from that, to ensure that if you're a real cooperative, the people who this is supposed to benefit actually have to be in charge. It can't be some, you know, some some government official somewhere who's really calling the shots. Right. And then your number five is uh, education and training. I mean, what mm -hmm. that means what? Just to train people how to do the the stuff that the cooperative well, does? Yeah, it's just it's just recognizing that, hey, if you're going to have a functioning democratic business, you know, people got to know something about it. Just like if you're going to have a democratic society, you know, where people are voting in elections, you want to, you you know, you hope they know what a senator is, you know. Wow. And, oh, my God. So Wouldn't the, that change the, the whole democratic system, though? If people if knew we did. <laughs> what they were voting for and what, what the jobs were and what they're supposed to do and stuff. Wow. It would so be like teaching something like civics, that, you mean. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, business civics. So, you, you know, you got to make sure people know what they're participating in. And, you know, there's got to be a recognition that some people are just going to have more access to more information about the business than others. But, um, but that this is about uh, over time, making sure that people can empower themselves within the business, be empowered with each other. And, and another piece of it, too, was like, you know, these old, you know, consumer cooperative stores in, in you know, 1830s, 40s England, what the, that these uh, uh, 50s, that these rules were designed to serve, you know, they would have like a, a library room in the in the store where people could just read the local newspaper that they couldn't afford to get to their homes, you know. So this was also just part of a, a general uh, philosophical commitment by this movement early on that that you know we want not just educated members uh, about the business, but we just wanna we wanna uplift our members in every way. And 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 this movement actually emerged. Uh, 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 as part of a Chartist movement, a kind of a movement that was that was all about enabling working people who were not landowners to participate in politics. So it was always it was a it was formed kind of in concert with a drive for for uh, expanding the vote in 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 government as well. 
Right. I mean, and if you look at the, uh, say, the Black Panthers or the um, other sort of African-American cooperative movement of the 1960s and 70s, I mean, there's a tremendous education component in there. That's right. You know, and and an amazing book on that subject, on the history of of Black uh, cooperative movements uh, called Collective Courage by Jessica Gordon Empard uh, really emphasizes that. She talks a lot about the role of of mutual education in in pretty much every cooperative she studied. And and uh, and that's a it's an important theme. And it's something that you know, a lot of us involved in this in this movement have really tried to take to heart and to make sure that, you know, education is is part of how we work, that we're always learning uh, and creating the structures that and resources that enable us to learn from each other. Which because the, the weird thing that happens to me when I try to uh, uh, promote co-op, co-ops and cooperative values is sometimes well-meaning identity politics uh, friendly liberals will say, well, isn't that kind of elitist? Aren't you talking a co-op is fine for wealthy, white, college-educated, spiritual progressives. But people, you know, in the projects, they wouldn't be able to do this. They're not, you know, educated enough or, or uh, uh, they're, they're too, living too close to the bone already to get involved in things like the Park Slope Co-op, as if these are, you know, elitist fabrications. You know, and it's it's... it's it's sort of amazing to me, and I can bring up the historical examples to say, no, 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 it's the inner city people that you're looking down on are the ones that could teach you about how to do a cooperative enterprise. Oh, yeah. And there are so many examples of that. I mean, the, you look at some of the um, some of the great credit unions uh, in this country and, you know, so many of them uh, arose in communities in places of the most need. Um, and this is a, a pattern we see again and again. But there is something that your truth and what you're pointing to, which is that there is also a kind of elitist cooperative movement or, or strain uh, in this country, too. You know, for example, you look at those food grocery store food co-ops and like the Park Slope Food Co-op. They're very important in certain respect because they helped create the market for organic, natural, you know, food. I, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, my mom was into that sort of stuff. So she would go to this little closet co-op place and get soy milk. And then Whole Foods shows up and then she starts going to Whole Foods, right? And and that's, uh, uh, that's the end of that. Mm-hmm. And um, in contrast, you know, it, go to Italy. Um, there, the largest grocery retail in the country is a cooperative. And, and it, it looks a lot of different ways in different places. So, for instance, sometimes it looks like a Whole Foods and then sometimes it looks like a Target. Um, right. And one of the things that the food co-op movement in the U.S., which emerged very much out of this kind of in many places, not everywhere, out of this kind of 60s counterculture um, uh, uh, culture, for lack of a better word, ended up with a situation where people would go and say, hey, actually, could we also have some like cheaper, you know, corporate stuff here uh-huh. um, that that, you know, we can afford just because that organic food, at least for the moment, is too expensive for a lot of us. And they'd say, no, we're not going to have that corporate crap here. Right. And so then you end up creating, you know, a, a, a food co-op system that is only accessible by certain by certain people. And and as a result, they end up kind of seeding, seeding the opportunity to become, you know, the dominant force uh, to companies that are willing to make those compromises. And so, you know, to me, the question is, is, you know, sometimes people in cooperatives 
think that this is like a space of no compromise because we're in control so we can do whatever we like. I think of it as an opportunity to manage our compromises right. and to recognize it become, right. that's right. It could right. become too Puritan so almost. So it's like, you know, it, it seems it seems uh, uh, hypocritical to say, oh, our, our cooperative sells Marlboro cigarettes at a discount. But on another level, there's a, a, a reality to it. Hey, yeah, people are buying those cigarettes, and if they're not buying them from your cooperative, they're going to buy them somewhere else. And and uh, you know you can you can have those cigarettes, and you can have you know educational campaigns within the cooperative and talk about what we're going to do about you know talk about what smoking does and all that. Um, you can do it differently than another kind of business, just like REI. You know, set, closes on good on on uh, you know day after Thanksgiving. What's that? Uh, Black Friday. Um, you know, because they can, because right. there's no, you know, there's no investor on Wall Street who's going to be like, uh, actually, could you not do that? <laughs> right. right? Um, they, they're just, they're, they have a freedom to put values first, but also, you know, they're, they're a business and they, and they, uh, you know, they make compromises that have enabled them to, you know, really survive and flourish uh, uh, at a moment where retail is, is really struggling. And that's where you think that's where your democratic membership control comes in, but to, to vote on and participate on where do we want to make such compromises? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, and it doesn't have to be a sort of thing where you're voting every day, you know, right. like I'm so glad that my credit union, it's the largest, you know, mortgage lender in the region. They're doing a ton of business. I'm so glad they're not calling me or texting me, you know, every time they have a mortgage application right. and say, you know, should we go through this? You know, right. Like, no, no yeah, you're not because then everyone's that. doing everything and that'd be crazy. You know, that's right. I But I can still go to the annual meeting. You know, I do. And um, I run for the run for the board and and. Uh, there are other ways, there, there are mechanisms of participation that are appropriate to the nature of the business. And, and that's what, you know, that's the yeah. opportunity here. And, and, and it comes down to accountability. It comes down to the fact that, hey, when they have to make a tough decision that's going to hurt one way or the other, you know, they have permission to not throw their customers under the bus because their customers are, are ultimately who they're, that's where the buck stops. You know, that's ultimately who they're accountable to. Whereas, you know, another kind of business, uh, a business owned by Wall Street, you know, is uh, the, the Wells Fargo across the street, right? Day to day, they probably look a lot like the credit union in terms of what kind of things are happening. But, you know, when push comes to shove, you know, they get involved in all kinds of funny business just to keep their investors happy. And it ends up screwing over, you know, the retail customers uh, because ultimately they're not accountable to those retail customers in in the same way. In the same way. I mean, the, it, it, it runs into other problems, which which I guess gets to... to number principle number six which is cooperation among cooperatives which i think in some ways is the hardest one you know i was uh trying to help out a credit union in vermont and one of their big problems as they understood it was that there was a bunch of credit unions in vermont all competing for the same members so i was kept saying number six is cooperation among cooperatives yeah. you shouldn't compete against the other one um and they're like what are you saying they're coming into our territory <laughs> they're taking our people and so now we got to push back and then try to get some of their people how if you're supposed to have cooperation among cooperatives how do you do that if there's more than one cooperative doing the same thing in the same place 
Yeah, it, 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 that, this one can be hard. Um, and, and I think like all of these rules, there are, there are ways in which a little violation here and there doesn't hurt so much. And you know, maybe sometimes it's not a bad thing to have some credit unions competing with each other. But you want to create structures where, where cooperation is, is happening because otherwise really this, this ecosystem doesn't work. In the same way that you can't build a cooperative with one person or a bunch of people who are fighting with each other, the whole idea of a, of a cooperative in itself, like those electric cooperatives, was people recognizing their common interest. And similarly, you can't build individual businesses into an ecosystem, into a, a sector without those cooperatives you know, for the for the most part, recognizing their common interests, and I think unfortunately that cult, sense of culture has been lost in, in a lot of places in the U.S. where co-ops have been kind of lurking under the radar, just pretending to be good old capitalism for so long that they have kind of forgotten their cooperative identity. So that that kind of puts the the onus on on the kind of new generation coming to this movement to you know revive that sense of identity. One way we're doing that in Colorado is we're developing a, a shared cooperative branding. You know, colorado.coop is a portal where cooperatives can find each other. You know, we you, they can all put that uh, logo in their window. Um, you know, they can rec- they can appreciate the fact that people in general are more likely to shop at cooperatives if they know their cooperatives than than another kind of business. And um, and so you create those alignments so you're not relying on people, um, you know, having to be saints all the time. And, right. and another strategy is, is legal. You know, um, in Italy, for instance, again, one of the reasons their cooperative sector is so is so powerful is that co-ops are actually required by law to contribute some portion of their um, of their profits to help finance the development of new cooperatives. And uh, and so they're actually. Uh, they have a kind of legally enforced ecosystem that that uh, supports and enables uh, inc- and incentivizes cooperatives to to want to support each other. And because if if everybody does well, you know everybody else benefits. So it's a um, you know the, it, I think it's really a challenge of building the right structures to enable and support that kind of cooperation. But it's also changing a certain mindset. I mean, and that's yeah. sort of the, the hardest thing here. So if you're the guy who has the Ace Hardware cooperative and you're doing business with the one next door that's part of, uh, let's just call it the the Happy Donuts cooperative, um, uh-huh. and the donuts guy needs to buy some hardware from you for his cooperative, you know, if you're going to approach the art of the deal... In the Trumpian way, <laughs> right? Or the, or the traditional ruthless businessman way. A successful deal means you got what you want and the other person did the deal even though he's really upset about it. In other words, if he's not yeah. upset with the deal he made, then you didn't win. Then <laughs> if he leaves happy, yeah. then it means you should have asked for more money. And the cooperation among cooperatives is arguing that, no, 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 in the long term, if that person is happy, that's good. That if if that donut guy stays in business longer, you're going to have a happier customer who's buying more stuff from you, who's got more people buying donuts from him or then going to give street traffic to your store. You know, the whole notion that things are are, are accretive rather than than, uh, a zero sum you know, has to somehow play into it. 
Yeah, yeah. It, but it also it is, I think of cooperatives, you know, here I get into my, you know, crazy spiritual stuff, you know. Uh, that's where the, I live there, so go there. Yeah. Co <laughs> cooperatives are are, a, are creatures of the fall, you know, and, and uh, you know, I appreciate the way, you know, you kind of connect this to these older older traditions. Um, and, you know, I, I personally am Roman Catholic and I, I've, I've been really appreciative of, uh, you know, part of the process for me here has been discovering the roots of this in, in some of these religious traditions. And so you know, I'm going to use some theological language here. You know, these are, these are creatures of the fall. These are not businesses designed with the expectation that we're all perfect, you know, or that we, if we just do a little more internal cleansing and, you know, uh, uh, meditate an hour a day, then we will like be good and we'll, we'll be conscious or whatever the language is. No, these are businesses designed for people who are kind of broken and, and have a little bit of, have goodness in them and have, you know, have a little bit of that art of the deal in them too. And, and the whole notion of, of forming, you know, the cooperative is an institutional innovation. It's a, it's a structure designed to make apparent to people precisely the, you know, the truth that you suggested, right, which is that ultimately, we will benefit from working together and from supporting each other's success. Um, this is a structure that enables people to see that day to day and do it without having to like, trust each other to be perfect without having to um, have worked out all of their inner demons first before they can even come in. Um, and so to me, it's a it's a it's an invitation to a kind of institutional design that allows people to see and uh, embody, you know, a better side of themselves. Uh, what what you know the Catholic worker founders, you know, Dorothy Day and Peter Morin talked about a, a place where it's easier to be good. You know, not because you know you're you're perfect, but because you know the the system just helps you see the benefits of goodness more more clearly you know right and, and we can we and, can embed certain values and stack the deck i mean all of these things are social constructions anyway so why yeah. not socially construct transactional platforms and commercial systems that engender the best qualities of humans <laughs> rather than yeah. deciding them to bring out the worst Without illusions, you know, without the, you know, and, and honestly, a lot of the, you know, co-op, young, you know, co-op entrepreneurs I run into do come in with, I think, a certain set of illusions about. Well, they're young. You know, it's sweet in a certain way. They, they're, I mean, they're going to get disillusioned at some point, but isn't that just part of youth? You're in your 20s. <laughs> well, older, your eyes older are clear. Ones too. You're older been ones going too, to wonderful you know? <laughs> raves and now you're going to make a cooperative rave, veggie, vegan yoga enlightenment center. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, the, the um, you know, I, I generally tend to appreciate the people who come to this with, you know, a deeper business experience, and then, you know, some co-op experience, you know, and, right. and, and they come to it mainly as a business in the sense that they're trying to solve a problem successfully, right? And they, they have an idea about how to do that, or they have a process in motion, they have a, they see an opportunity, and then they recognize the cooperative as a strategy for actually achieving that thing better than another model. You know, that's how my yeah. grandfather. Well, it's almost it, you know? like treating it almost like it's a 12-step a program for those who've become addicted to capitalism and, and punished and hit <laughs> right. bottom. So now they join the cooperative movement, accept that there's this higher power and and go right. through the steps, right. uh, you know, of cooperation and democratic, democratic control and autonomy and and slowly become better people. 
there and, and there is that sense, you know, I think there is that opportunity to slowly become better people in this. And that's the beauty of it. You know, that's that's as opposed to, for instance, like, you know, I, I, maybe you can relate to this, you know, during the like crypto boom, you know, the like $50 or whatever that, you know, I bought of stuff while I was reporting years ago to play around with suddenly worth something. And so I suddenly found myself like being a financial trader, you know, like trying to figure out just what to do with this stuff and also like get it in a place that would be more legal than 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 where it otherwise might be. Right. You know, and so I was like doing trades and deals and stuff and I and just doing like that financial transaction. So I could feel myself like becoming something you know th this bus right. business shapes us right i could different feel hormones like, get released and it like changes yeah. your personality no i was watching like the business i w was sitting one day like at the business school here where they always have the horrible business news on you know and uh and you know i was like you know, You're watching and Jim they were Kramer. actually talking about this. I was watching. No, I was. He and he was talking about Bitcoin, and and he was yelling at me, and I was like, "Oh gosh, I gotta go." And he was right. I really that was a good moment. I was glad he did that. But my gosh, what I could feel myself like becoming the image of yeah. that like transactor, that that machine transactor of play money. Um, and, right. There's and, that desperate and, and, sense. And, it's sort of like that feeling of of like speeding on a highway. You know, yeah. <laughs> like. <laughs> Yeah, it's business, not a pleasant business feeling. shapes us. Business shapes us, and and as much as we can organize these things in a way that is, you know, attentive to the realities of the world, but also gives us the opportunity to say, hey, if you actually do the right thing, you know, there's rewards in that. You know, that that helps us become better people. And also, I think, you know, to go back to that uh, blockchains, you know, the the kind of magic tech stuff, you know, I think we also need to always be pushing these forward. You know, the, a lot of the big old co-ops, it got to be honest, you know, in this country are not, they don't think of themselves very much as co-ops. They don't have a strong identity. They don't, they don't really distinguish themselves from other kinds of businesses. Right. You know, the, what's the difference between, you know, State Farm Insurance, which is mutually owned by its car insurance members and, you know, uh, the, the competitor down the street, you know, uh, that farmers insurance, for instance, which is, you know, a, a not mutually owned, um, not a whole lot of difference. So I think we, as with any other form of democracy, we need to always keep pushing not only the people inside, but the businesses and, and keep pushing, developing new strategies for, to deepen our democracy. Otherwise it gets so stale and it just really does not function anymore. Right. What's well, got to stay alive. I mean, you know, and part oh, yeah. of that is, is, you know, is this number seven concern for the community, which seems obvious. But I mean, I, you know, if you have a cooperative, you don't want to be polluting into the town's water or something because you live there. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so it's and, a little obvious. And even that, though, it's, you know, that's a great example. Like a lot of co-ops do that by just basically having a kind of corporate responsibility arm, you know, which is essentially give donations um, uh, as a way of wielding power in your community, right? Yeah. And I think it's it's uh, really important to recognize that no, it's got to go deeper than that. And and this is why you know a lot of the young people getting involved in this new movement and of uh, this new wave of the cooperative movement that much of this book is about documenting. Um, you know, a lot of them are kind of they don't even want to touch you know the big old co-ops because they want to do business. They want to do that concern for community. Uh, uh, deeper into their business model. They want it to be part of every day, not just part of volunteer day. And sometimes they don't even use the word co-op. They'll use, you know, 
they'll go into language about collaborative economies, all sorts of things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, that's that's good that, you know, that we need that push to uh, to continue to dif- differentiate, to continue to push the capacity, the, the, the sense of possibility that this kind of movement, uh, that this kind of model can allow. Yeah. I mean, because, you know, charity is a great thing. I'm not going to say people shouldn't tithe or whatever, but in in most uh, in most business landscapes, charity is seen as a sort of compensation for the effects of your business on the world. So, you know, we're doing some awful thing and exploiting these people and destroying this land, but at least we're taking 20% of our profits and giving it to this good thing. Whereas if you have a true a cooperative that's genuinely concerned for the community, that's genuinely promoting autonomy and independence and participation and democracy and openness, um, then the co-op itself, the co-op business itself is having a net positive effect on reality. So, you know, taking away from the good that it's doing to do some other good is, uh, it's almost silly at a certain point. I mean, yeah, do it. If you've got extra money around, pay for the Little League, you know, help people out. But it's a very different understanding. And to the extent that co-ops actually do that is kind of, is, is one of their vulnerabilities. And this is something we have to learn to work around. You know, for instance, like, if you're a business school, you know, I'm working with my business school here. You know, I'm not in it, but I, I collaborate with them, you know, to uh, uh, to put on a conference on co-ops. You know, I'm really trying to help them, like, open up to this model. And, you know, I've got some good allies. People are interested in it. But the trouble is, it's like it's always so much easier to find some, you know, rich you know, investor or CEO who wants to promote their way of doing business and they've accumulated all this dough, you know, that they can pour into naming a building after themselves. Uh, Whereas, you know, my grandfather was a president of a cooperative, like lived in a, you know, very kind of modest house, you know, his, his, uh, uh, you know, kids went to, uh, went to state universities, you know, it's just kind of standard kind of middle-class uh, uh, experience, you know, he did well by the end, but you know, he was not fabulously wealthy. He wasn't naming anything after himself, and and that's the trouble because he was feeding all his profits back to his his members, you know, and and uh, there are some people in my family who feel like they were kind of defrauded, you know, because because uh, you know the profits were going back to those members. It, it was just functioning as a co-op. It wasn't accumulating resources, and then. Um, you know, whitewashing all the crap, you know, like Bill Gates, you know, whitewashing the fact that he's, you know, foisted horrible software on the world for, you know, for for a bunch of years uh, uh, by, you know, taking over the World Health Organization and, and you know, uh, solving all these unrelated problems, you know, right by spending Generally, capital. I mean, but yeah. which, which gets you to another the, another big issue that I think that people aren't getting quite yet is that cooperatives are about ownership you actually own the thing it's about the 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 where you we own the means of production it's not about kind of redistributing the spoils of capitalism after the fact with some kind of a, a grant or tax or welfare it's about actually owning the thing you know and and i hear a lot of people talking today they want to push through to something like universal basic income which it's hard to argue against because i know everybody needs money but income is not the solution. It would be, you know, what Marina Gorbis at Institute of the Future or for the Future talks about uh, uh, universal basic assets. The idea that we are we are each claiming a stake to this thing. Yeah. 
which is somehow fundamentally different than this kind of employee, uh, you know, oh, I'll get revenue from this thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, this idea of wage labor, right? It, you know, it's so it's it's um, for the last, you know, since World War Two, it's been kind of the model for employment and for, uh, you know, access to to uh, abundance uh, generally in our society. But like in the time of, of Abraham Lincoln, he has these great speeches where he talks about like, you know, nobody would work for somebody else for, you know, intentionally for, you know, more than just a few years to get on their own feet. You know, obviously all of us want to be kind of like owners of our own, you know, uh, uh, land or business or whatever it is. You know, he, he could say that at a time, you know, uh, in the years before the Civil War in a way that we can't even imagine now. Um, and and uh, uh, but it is ownership is so important because uh, that wage social contract is just not working anymore. And when you look at where the where wealth inequality is really coming from, it's ownership inequality. It's the fact that, you know, all the value that is being created from what we produce is going to the owners of it, not to the to the recipients of wages, just because labor has less leverage in the economy. So it's uh, how we own, I think, is really the the question of the 21st century, uh, and and it's 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 back there from that that period where the question was how we get get remunerated for renting ourselves. Um, right. Well, and- it's even further back, though. I mean, in the period that I always get interested in, and I find out more and more about it with every book I read, is that you know the the moment back in the late Middle Ages when. The, the King Henry VIII got rid of the Catholic Church and started his own, you know, because he wanted to get married to a divorced woman or get divorced or whatever it was he wanted. But the side effect of that was they enclosed the commons, you know, and the commons, in a sense, was is a is like a cooperatively operated shared asset that then became privatized land. And the Catholics have always kind of railed against that as the beginning of the end, that that's when we got, you know, the invention of the chartered monopoly, which became the corporation. That's when we got the invention of central currency and all of the local currencies that were uh, tilted towards towards uh, circulation and distribution got uh, repressed or made illegal. You know, that was the moment of the birth of the individual, the Vitruvian man that's supposed to somehow, uh, uh, like Dr. Faustus, you know, uh, uh, learn all these things and become one of the gods. And the collapse of the the mutuality and community and, and sense of uh, uh, home and kinship and solidarity that defined the human experience up till then. You know, and that's when this sort of more corrosive, competitive, highly individualistic brand of capitalism was born. Yeah, so I mean, this, this is a, a kind of historic opportunity, and and I, I like looking at that moment. You know, another person who looks at that moment as as you do is is Michelle Bowens of the P2P Foundation. You know, very interested in the commons as a kind of path forward, and and uh, that moment is important because it's an example of an economy shifting drastically. And and actually, the whole society shifting with it, you know, the spirituality, the culture shifting uh, uh, together. And it seems like we may be in a moment where those kinds of things may be happening. And, and, and it's important to look to that moment because we recognize there are choices. There are choices that we're making now that we don't think of as being kind of world historical choices, uh, uh, but which which are. And I think 
that question of, of ownership, what becomes of it, what we do with it is, uh, is critical. Maybe ownership is actually, you know, some people in this new, you know, generation in the cooperative movement want to do away with ownership ultimately. You know, they, they want to get away from that, that logic, you know, property is theft. They, you know, they, they don't want that to be the destination. Um, some mm. want to hold on to that. I'm, I'm kind of indifferent. Um, but to me, the, the, the main question is, regardless of, you know, where we end up, if we don't get there by addressing the inequalities of ownership and making sure to practice the art of ownership, uh, build democracy into the art of ownership, uh, we're, we're uh, going to end up with a bad situation no matter what it looks like. Either we'll, it will be a kind of feudalism in, with, in which people are owning or a feudalism in which people are not owning, you know. Right. And the question is, is have we managed to equalize power to the point where, you know, every person, family, community in a society have voice, you know, have have the capacity to shape their, you know, their their destiny. You know, the cooperative model is, you know, in a way it's a it's a thing and a solution and an answer, or maybe it's a metaphor and an inspiration that invites us into this possibility that, yes, actually, we can push democracy into other areas of our lives. And here's here's a bunch of ways that people have been doing it that nobody ever taught you in uh, civics class or economics class or or in the kind of normal run of cultural experience. And and your book, I mean, is a points to a lot of different ones, you know, a lot of trailheads for people to explore of um, obvious, less obvious, very known and extremely unknown uh, examples of people, you know, sometimes succeeding, sometimes struggling and only half succeeding at building these cooperative structures. Um, For those, while people are waiting to receive the book, or to get to their bookstore, because they're listening at night now, and they're not going to get to the bookstore till 10 in the morning. So this evening, if people were going to try to explore online, what are what are sort of some examples of places of people that are that are doing this that they can they can poke around at and maybe model some of these uh, in order to try to build cooperatives of their own? Well, for for one thing, there are some great organizations that are starting to form uh, that are kind of portals into especially this new generation. Um, uh, The New Economy Coalition has been in the United States a really important uh, entry point, uh, has been a a kind of container for the new wave of cooperative development that is super intersectional, you know, is interested in racial justice and climate justice and and all these connected things. And their conferences are amazing. uh, the resources that uh, they that they publish are are really important, and they're kind of anchoring this new generation in these kind of historic challenges of in American society in particular. And then also, I mentioned earlier the P two P Foundation, uh, which is the, founded by Michelle Bowens, who's just this incredible sponge of of uh, information and currents and trends and and possibilities, and and the. P2P Foundation's website uh, is just full of resources of these kinds of possibilities, um, more oriented toward uh, the kind of possible future in which, you know, ownership matters less and and we um, can, can revert to a kind of more straightforward, less mediated economy in which we uh, get what we need and, and produce what we want. 
those two resources have been really inspiration, uh, full of inspiration for me. And then also to look uh, to the cooperatives around you, to notice the credit unions, to notice the, you know, the mutual insurance companies, the, the um, purchasing cooperatives lurking behind the local stores in your area. Um, uh, and, and explore whether, you know, if you're already a member of one of these, is there a way that you can think about becoming more involved, learning from that process, uh, reactivating uh, uh, the cooperative ecosystem already at work around you, and helping the people in it recognize the opportunity that they have to shape, uh, to shape their world? I mean, not everyone can do it, unfortunately. I mean, not every business, I guess, is cut out to be a cooperative, is it? Or do you feel like almost anyone? You know, there's there's people who listen to this show who've got, you know, we've got a, a solar bakery, you know, with a couple of yeah. employees and they're, they're you know, it, it's hard, you know, to, to try to offer, even to offer, you know, maternity leave to somebody under the current uh, legal restrictions on how long you're allowed to have somebody, you know, not working for you and still get benefits. And it's really hard. Um, but you can't just say, okay, we've got a donut shop, I've got a bakery, we've got a farm, let's just make it a, a co-op, because your workers might not be there long enough, or some are and some aren't, right? You can't, yeah, th- everyone I, can't do it, can they? I think the, the, the question is, re- is recognizing the different forms that this kind of model can take. And no, of course, like, it's not the, the you know, solution that, that, that fits for every, every single kind of case, and there are different kinds of approaches uh, out there that have emerged that enable people to do this kind of ownership design uh, in in other kinds of creative ways. Um, but at the same time, I think that there is more dexterity and potential in even just the specific cooperative tradition that a lot of people realize. So even a, a you know a small store that's owned by owned by a family, you know, doesn't make all it, it, that's working out, doesn't really need to be a cooperative, you know, owned by all of its workers equally or something. Uh, but maybe there are a bunch of stores like it that could band together and do joint purchasing. You know, that um, I, I find uh, in almost any case that I've co- started coming across and thinking about this with, there are ways in which you know, maybe the company itself wouldn't become a cooperative, but that using this kind of model could actually enable it to bring out the best in itself. Um, and so, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's again, not a, not a fix-all, it's not a cure-all, it's not for everything, but it's a, a severely underappreciated strategy uh, for doing business that has helped shape and build the best parts of our world and, and I think uh, can uh, do uh, uh, even uh, even greater things in the future if we if we learn to reclaim it. Yeah, and the and the other beautiful thing about it is, I mean, I've got a lot of people, you know, foundations and say, asking me, can you help come up with a narrative that can help people understand sort of a post-capitalist society and how that would work, as if it's you know rewriting the Bible or coming up with a new Joseph story, you know, but. The stories are there in real life. There's nonfiction stories of people who've leveraged the power of cooperation and participation and openness to create distributed prosperity for themselves and everyone who interacts with them, which stands in just such stark contrast to the zero-sum, I-win-you-lose mentality that that dominates and, and really frightens people into submission oh, yeah. to the current model. 
Oh yeah, and you know, I was just, I was just with a, you know, a, an entrepreneur's, you know, young woman who um, helped start a, a cooperative in the veterinary industry, right? And she, her co-op has, um, it's called the Veterinary Cooperative. It's taken hold of about a third, you know, its members include about, you know, it's thousands of members after just a few years. They they have a really sizable chunk of the independent market in that industry. If she were a tech startup, you know, and we're like doing TED Talks and like, you know, courting investors and, you know, going on tech crunch, you know, she would be this like heroine who is like transforming this this industry that is kind of uh, 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 old and cranky and regular and whatever, but you know she she's just she's actually all is transforming that industry, but she's doing it kind of humbly and you know relationship by relationship and you know building a, a business that actually helps the 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 incumbents the people who know the industry best rather than trying to disrupt them out of out of the game and it's something we need to learn how to honor again it's something we need to learn how to respect a way of doing business we need to uh, we need to be able to tell stories about uh, uh, instead of the kind of business that actually uh, uh, hurts our communities that that makes us less uh, uh, resilient and less able to um, uh, to to meet our needs, you know, and and it, you know, so when I see her, it's like it. That's the that's kind of the problem we face, you know. This is the kind of person that we need to learn how to respect. That we've we, we we've just lost the language and capacity for. Right. Well, hopefully that's what we're here for. You know, <laughs> to, 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 that's the, the the reason for uh, being for Team Human. You know, to help people recontextualize their humanity. From a, a solo endeavor to a team sport. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's all about recognizing, you know, being able to see humanity again and, and honor people who don't aspire to be demigods, you know, and you know who are just making things work better. It's a whole new whole new definition of success. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Nathan. Thanks for what you do. And thanks for Absolutely. being on Team Human. Thank you for uh, leading us into Team Human for uh, you know for holding the space and for your leadership in this stuff as well. You know oh, we've, it, we've benefited a lot uh, from you know your insight and your presence and you know helping to and helping to make this stuff visible again. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was activist Nathan Schneider, author of the new book Everything for Everyone: The Radical Tradition That Is Shaping the Next Economy. You can find out more about Nathan and his writing at nathanschneider.info. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.